This is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to Upstage Left. In this episode, I speak with William Carden, also known as Billy, who has served as the artistic director at the Ensemble Studio Theatre since 2007. He is a director and actor who also served as the AD at the HB Playwrights Foundation and Theatre for over a decade. Full disclosure, EST has been one of my artistic homes for the past few years, so I was especially excited to get to talk to Billy even more so because it was announced last year that he'll be stepping down soon from his position. I also just love talking to people who have been around the block a few times because I like hearing about the people and experiences that have stuck with them over the years. The way Billy talks about his fellow castmates from the past and his collaborators just fills me with so much joy. He pays them such great respect. And there's a part where he talks about Uta Hagen And he regards her with such reverence that I just adored hearing about. Speaking of paying respects to the people who are no longer with us, this episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, This is My Office and Notes on My Mother's Decline, two plays by Andy Bragan. The plays read like a pair of elegies, both about parents, one about a father and one about a mother. Each play is a portrait of a life by way of the narrator named Andy in the case of This Is My Office and via the character of the son in Notes on My Mother's Decline. Tender is the word that comes to mind after reading each of these plays. Tender and intimate. Really beautiful. If you're looking for a solo show or a small cast play to read, definitely think about picking up this book. Listeners receive a 20% discount on this book or any other title in the collection with the promo code POD20, P-O-D-20. This offer is available at newpress.northwestern.edu. Thank you so much for tuning in, as always. Follow us on Instagram at at upstageleftpodcast. It's also where we post all the shows we see and are going to be seeing. So uh, if you want recommendations for plays, definitely come check us out. Here is Billy Carden. How is everything going, Billy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Everything's, you know, I think everything's going well. This has just been such a period of life to live through, you know, and live through when you're running a theater. Yeah. You know, I'm just... You know, I'm glad we're finally starting to return to being in rooms together, which I've had the opportunity to do a few times recently. And the difference is so amazing. Mm. You know, yesterday I met with Graham and Alfredo Narciso and Bobby Moreno, because Bobby was going to read us this piece he'd written about his dad, who died recently. Oh, wow. But the fact that we were all able to sit together and we were in the theater at EST and sit together and talk and then Bobby read this thing and we talked to him about it. And, you know, as we were talking, I suddenly realized we would never have these conversations on Zoom. Mm. You know, they were just what happens when you're just aware of the other person. You're not aware that you're speaking now and the other, you have to wait for the other person to speak or, you know, and you start to, you start to share and connect in a different way. So it was really, it just reminded me how great that is and how unique. And it's what theater is really about. Yeah. Yeah. And you and you just finished directing a play at Rutgers last week? It yeah, went I did. Up last week? What yeah. play was it? It was a play called In a Word by Lauren Yee. Oh, yeah. Oh, actually, I saw that play. I saw that one when it went up. It's a two-hander, right? Three-hander. There's, it's a couple. And then a third actor plays all the other roles. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. They did it, I think, at the Cherry Lane or someplace like that. That's that right. That's right. I don't remember who produced it, but yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah, It's a. it was a really fun play to work on. But we had to rehearse with masks. Um, uh-huh. They didn't have to perform with masks, but most of the rehearsals were with masks. And then towards the end, I got when we were going to run a scene, right? We would work on a scene, but then if we were going to run it without stopping, they could take off their masks. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Well, with Rutgers, you're dealing with a big state university. So all these 
policy decisions have to come down from on high because of liability issues. Do you think yeah. it changed the way you directed it since they were rehearsing in masks? Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, I, oh yeah, because I found myself saying to the actors, you know, repeatedly, do you, do you understand that? Or does that make sense? Because, you know, it was very hard to read whether what I said had landed. And when you're directing a play, you know, it's just, it's very delicate. You don't, you want to, you want to get how someone's receiving what you're saying. Right, right. And it was just harder just to read the eyes. Mm. And I think for them rehearsing it, you're also not, you're not getting that from the person you're doing the scene with. You're not getting the full response to what you've just said. Yeah. Yeah. Did it go well? It did go well. I mean, I think, you know, these are student actors, the conservatory program. They're all very serious. You know, we did three performances. And by the third one on Sunday night, they really got where I hoped they would go. Amazing. Yeah. Where are you from? I'm from where we're speaking. You're from New York? I was born in Manhattan. I was born on the Upper East Side. Oh, wow. That's where I grew up, on 78th Street between... Second and third, and then between Lexington and third. Oh wow! Yeah. And how did you end up in the theater? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think I I started doing it in school. I come from a very privileged background. I mean, my father was a physician in Manhattan, mm. and I went to private schools. And then, starting in seventh grade, I went to boarding. I started going to boarding schools. It was there that I really started acting. You know, for High school, I went to a prep school called Millbrook in Millbrook, New York. Mm. Um, and I remember I was walking to a rehearsal and the thought occurred to me, you could, you could actually do this for a living, for what a job. Um, so I started to think about that, I guess. And then when I looked at colleges, I, I would sort of look at the theater, but I was scared of saying that's what I wanted to do. I was scared of letting my parents know that. Um, mm. Then, you know, then I continued. I went to St. Lawrence University for two years, which is in upstate New York, because mm-hmm. that's the only college I got into. And then I transferred because I wanted to do more theater and I'd sort of gone through their theater. They had a two person theater department. So I transferred to Brandeis, oh, wow. uh, which is outside of Boston, but, you know, had a big theater department, still does. Mm. So I, I was. What I did at St. Lawrence was I, you know, I acted in plays, but I also built the sets and um, was very involved in the scene design uh, because mm-hmm. one of the teachers was had just graduated from the Yale School of Drama and Scene Design, and he'd okay. had, you know, a very famous theater history course that was taught by a guy named Nogler who wrote the book that's used in a lot of theater history courses. So I, mm-hmm. you know, he was dumping all that, and we were, you know, there were very few people at St. Lawrence interested in theater. So there was, you got tremendous attention from the two teachers that were there. Amazing. Yeah. The other one was a woman named Margaret Holmes, who had uh, danced with Martha Graham uh, for many, many years until she got too old. She, you know, she ran, she ran the theater department. She directed the plays. She directed them right out of the Sam French Editions which used to have the blocking in them and the ground plan. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we just follow that. <laughs> um, uh, but what I didn't know was one of the students there who knew her said, "Nobody's interested, but she could teach movement because she she danced with Martha Graham." So, uh, like three of us went to her and said, "We're really interested in a movement class," and she said, "You are," and we said, "Yeah." She said, "Well." Uh, let's do it. We'll have to meet every day because there'll be no homework. Um, so we showed up. This was night. We're talking, you know, I'm 74 years old. So mm-hmm. we're talking 1967, 68. Okay. And, you know, no one wore leotards or anything like that. So she took us into this, cost, you know, the costume shop and put us in leotards and then took us into this studio and started to do things with her body that we could not do with ours. It, you know, and was it was really rigorous and kind of amazing, you know. Wow. So that was so I, I kind of got a unique 
education there. But then, so then went to Brandeis and I was more, I was actually a, a directing major at Brandeis, but oh. I did a lot of acting, but I was sort of scared of taking the acting classes. They are so, scary, <laughs> understandably so. <laughs> and then I, I left Brandeis. Um, I never graduated. I left partway through my senior year in part because I was, I think I sort of had a nervous breakdown. I mean, I just was, there were a lot of questions I had left unanswered. And also they said I was going to have to stay longer because there were credits that I'd gotten at St. Lawrence that they weren't going to honor. So they didn't match the Brandeis credits. So I left. And, but then I started working in Cambridge in Boston. And I worked with a, a, a company that was forming them called the Cambridge La Mama, which was a branch of the La Mama company in New York that, you know, Ellen Stewart had started. And a friend also who had become head of the theater department, a very small teacher's college that teaches early education called Wheelock, hired me to act in plays there and also direct plays there. So I started mm -hmm. doing that. So you began directing and acting kind of all at once. Yeah. Or at the same time. At the same time. But then I came and then from La Mama, we actually did a production in Cambridge that we brought down to New York and performed in New York uh -huh. at the La Mama in New York. And from that, I decided I wanted to stay in New York and I decided to study acting and I studied with Wynne Hanman um, oh. as an acting teacher for like three years. Um, so that's really where I started seriously pursuing acting. And that was New York in the 70s? That was New York in like 1970, 71, 72, 73. Were you yeah. seeing a lot of theater? What was the scene like? The scene was kind of amazing because one, there was much more informal theater. Mm. But I think in part because real estate was still inexpensive so you could just get a space and do something in it mm -hmm. um, one of the, the the first play i actually did in new york was done at the manhattan theater club which was just starting lynn meadow had just graduated from yale she was starting this theater on the uh, upper east side and it started on east i think it was 73rd street in an old Ukrainian hall or something that was, it was an old building that had big rooms in it. And we did a Polish play by a Polish playwright named Witold Gombrowicz, who's very well known in Eastern Europe and in, and actually in dramatic literature, but it had never been done in this country. And that was the first play I did. And I, and I, I think I got into it because a very good friend of mine at that and still is, is, was an actor named Stephen Mandillo who had graduated from Yale. And I knew Steve when he was at Yale. And he he kind of recommended me to them. And, and so I auditioned for, and it was co-directed by Tom Bullard hmm. and David Shukoff. Tom Bullard then went on to become head of the directing program at Brooklyn College oh, for yeah. many years. And David Shukoff still works for the Manhattan Theater Club in the education department, I think. And they used to, they'd both come out of Yale and they co-directed. In the cast was Henry Winkler, Lindsey Krauss, David Clennon, who then went on, you, if you look him up, he was on 30-something and did a lot of television work. Uh, Joan Pape, who's no longer alive. Jim Murtaugh, who's an EST member, but also has worked as an actor for years in, in New York. Yeah. Who did you play? What was your character? I, it was... One of the main characters was Henry's character, and he had a friend, ah. and I was, I was his friend. Okay, and good. It was, and it was sort of this play that went into absurdist moments. Yeah. Good. Weird, weird play? Did you do yeah, a lot of weird plays? It was a weird play, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was actually through that that I got an agent, because Henry's agent was a woman named Joan Scott, who came and saw it, and then I met with her, and she took me on as a client. Oh, wow. So, so then it was in about 1973, I got my first equity job Amazing. at the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Oh, cool. And 
again, I wouldn't have gotten that job without my friend Stephen Mendilla, oh. who, you know, we would, you know, as actors do, you would say, what's going on? What are you going up for? What's happening? You know, and he called me at one point and, and in those days, TCG, you know, TCG, yeah, the yeah, theater, theater communications group. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they, they had a casting department that worked with a lot of the regional theaters. So the regional theaters would come in and work with the TCG casting director. And so he'd gone down there to audition for this play. And he called me up and he said, you know, I was just auditioning for this play. And there's a part in it. He said, they're looking for you. (laughs) And I had gone and done a general audition for the TCG casting director. And it hadn't been good. And, (laughs) and, And I was never good at monologue auditions. Oh, yeah, they're bad. I mean, who is? Right. So, and, but, you know, but I kept calling, I kept calling my agent about Joan, about, you know, things that I knew were going on at TCG and could I get in? And she finally had to call me in and say, listen, he just doesn't, I can't do anything because he doesn't like you. (laughs) So I, I said to Steve, I said, you know, that I, he doesn't, he's not going to bring me in. And Steve said, well, call, call Joan and get him to and see if she'll just call. So I didn't do anything. <laughs> and Stephen called me the next day and he said, did you call Joan? And I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, you can call her or I'm going to come over there and take you down there myself. And he's bigger than I am. So I called Joan and I said, I hate to beat a dead horse, but they are casting this play. And I've heard about it, and I've heard I might really be right for this part. So she called, and it turned out the director said he was willing to see anyone. Oh, wow. So I went in. The director was a man named Kent Paul, who recently died at the age of 80, who I stayed in touch with for the rest of, my, for the rest of his life. But he gave me my first, and it was a play called A Memory of Two Mondays by Arthur Miller about his experience working in an auto parts warehouse during the depression before he went to college. And that's the role I played. I played the young Arthur Miller. And yeah, so we, and we did it in this little theater called the shelter house, which is part of the Cincinnati playhouse in the park. That's awesome. That's so cool. And, Um, and when did you kind of start working with EST? Um, I started working with DST, I guess, around 1978. Yeah, I, but I came back, you know, after Cincinnati in the park, I guess the, the big thing that happened to me was I got, I was, I started to work on a play called Short Eyes. Mm. Short Eyes was a play by Miguel Pinheiro. And it's interesting that so few people have heard of Miguel these days. Miguel was a what we today we would call a Latinx writer. He was Puerto Rican. Um, his family had emigrated from Puerto Rico. He'd grown up on the streets and had been in and out of penal institutions from about the age of 12. Mm-hmm. When, when he was in Sing Sing, in Austin, New York, the prison, yeah. he started writing poetry and, and plays and he got he got attention because Mel Gusso, from who was the critic for the New York Times, had gone up to see these prison performances, and he wrote about what Miguel was writing. And out of this, Miguel ended up at the theater of Riverside Church in Manhattan because Arthur Bartow, who ran that, who was who was running that theater, had contacted Miguel and gone up and visited him in prison. And Miguel had said, I get out sooner if I have a job. And so Arthur gave him a job as a script reader at his theater. And Theater of Riverside Church is on 120th and Broadway. And Arthur wanted, Miguel was now working for Arthur. And Arthur said, you know, I really want to find a play that is from, you know, that deals with this community in this neighborhood. And Miguel said, well, I, I have the first act of a play. And he gave him the first act of this play, Short Eyes. And Arthur read it and was said, this is really good. If, you know, if you write a second act, I, I consider doing it. And he said, well, if you, if you promise you'll do it, I'll write the second act. That's um, how you make a deal. <laughs> so Miguel wrote the second act. And 
Arthur put to play together with another man who, who'd come to him through Miguel named Marvin Felix Camillo, who'd started a theater workshop in prison. And these were, you know, this was 1973. At that point, you know, I was 26. Uh, these were men who were my age who were in prison for drug-related offenses, and the drug in those days was heroin. And as they got out of prison, you know, they said, what what happens when we get out? We've done, because we, they created these pieces that they performed in prison that got a lot of attention and were toured to other prisons, you know, and they said, what happens when we get out? And Marvin met each guy at the gate and started this workshop outside of the prison. And so Arthur Bartow put together the Short Eye script and Marvin's group, which was called The Family, and they were going to perform this play. And they needed basically a white middle-class character to play a child molester, which is what Short Eyes means. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I came in and read for this part, and then I was cast in the play, which oh. we did initially at Theatre of Riverside Church. And then it was kind of extraordinary because the the authenticity that the actors brought to it had not been seen before. And also what Miguel wrote was extraordinary. Um, All the actors were former inmates, except you. Except me and Joe Carberry, who played another white guy, but it was much closer to the street. And as Joe said in one interview, when they were asking everyone, you know, going around and guys were saying, well, yeah, I was in for three years for this. I was in for this. And they got to Joe and he said, I did everything they did. I just didn't get caught. So he, right. you know, that, and then there was, there was a white captain who was like the smaller part, which was, a, you know, captain in the, of the prison guards that wasn't, hadn't, was someone who hadn't done time, but everyone else, yeah, came right. from that world, had had that experience. And so after we did it at Theater of Riverside Church, Joe Papp picked it up and took it down to the public theater where it ran in the Ansbacher. And then he moved it because he, in those days, Joe Papp was also running Lincoln Center. He was running the Vivian Beaumont Theater. Hmm. So he moved it up to the Vivian Beaumont Theater in hmm. Lincoln Center. So suddenly we were all, you know, doing this play in the Vivian Beaumont Theater, whose audience had never seen a play like this before. How was that? How was it for the actors? I think it was, I mean, you know, I I look at this in so many different ways. I mean, at the time, I was doing this play with these guys, right? Mm -hmm. When I look back from today's perspective, from what I've learned about race and racism and systemic racism, you know, how that play was perceived what that experience was for them, mm-hmm. I, I don't fully know. You know, I do know that it was exhilarating that they were giving voice to something that had never been given voice before. They were actually playing characters who had never been seen on stage before. Mm-hmm. It's like the first time I saw Jitney, if you know that August Wilson play, you know, set in the where the car, you know, all the guys who drive the cars in the car service wait for their calls. And you're seeing those characters had never been on stage before. We'd never seen those human beings, you know. Are are you in touch with that cast still? I'm probably the only one who's still alive. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, you know, that's why I think, I think, I think the I think it was both exhilarating and I think it was jarring and I think it was you know because they they had you know their identity up to that point was to be outside the law mm-hmm. to be outside of society they lived in and they lived in the street world that's what they knew and suddenly the people in the mink coats and the gold earrings are on their feet every night applauding you, but you're still going back to the street. Mm. That's the world. That's home, you know? So, and I think, you know, when Marvin had started this group that, that continued for many years, 
you know, with him into the, like, 1988, but that's when he died. But, you know, what happened was, I think it was about four or five years later, Ben Jefferson, who was the Black actor who was extraordinary in the play, was found on 135th Street, shot in the back. Um, Kenny Stewart, another one, was killed in Westchester. Tito Goya was another one who died. And I think, I'm not clear on his death. At the time he was being, he would, he'd gotten involved in a murder in Texas. But I think he died of, they say, of cirrhosis of the liver. I mean, it was a whole, as this was happening, I remember saying to Marvin, and none of this would have happened without Marvin. He was an extraordinary he was an extraordinary human being who knew how to, who loved these men and knew how to work with, knew how to, to, to help them and to work with them. And mm-hmm. he, you know, I said, what, I said, what is happening? And he said, what can I tell you? It's a high risk lifestyle. Um, and, and it's, so it's, um, you know, as you can tell, it's a, it's an unresolved issue in my life. I mean, that I, you know, I, st- I think about all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what that, you know, because it was, um, you know, what happened on stage with them was so intense and so real. And... And for me, also so disturbing because I was playing a very disturbed character. And in prison, basically, you know, those people are killed in prison. Mm. And that's what happened to my character. At the end of the first act, my head was put in a toilet. And at the end of the second act, my throat was cut. Mm. So, and and I was doing that eight times a week for almost a year. I mean... uh, yeah. Yeah. And so after that, what ha- what did you do after that? So after that I, you know, I I mean after we f- after the play finished at Lincoln Center, they it, there was a European tour it went to festivals in Europe. Uh-huh. And at that point I said I'm not going to go. Uh-huh. Just because I couldn't I really didn't I couldn't play that part anymore. I it was it was taking its toll. Sure. And so I started. I started acting in New York, and I did. I did plays off Broadway. I did a lot of regional theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. It was a, a long history of getting cast as very disturbed human beings. <laughs> in some cases, um, and that's. And along the way, I became. I did a play at Syracuse Stage in Syracuse, New York with a then actress, now playwright, named Kathleen Tolan, mm. who's also an EST member, and she's also now head of playwriting at Rutgers, where I also teach, so our, our paths have continued to cross. But she she was an EST member, and she said, you should be a member of EST. So she put me forward, and I came in, and I auditioned. Mm. Um, and I was accepted as a member, and I started to do work there. Um, as an actor or director? As, as an actor. Oh, and wow. I did a lot of work as an actor. Uh, and I, at that time, well, for many years, Kurt Dempster was the, he was the founder yeah. and the AD right. until 2007. Right. And in 2007, when he passed, you took on that role. Yeah, I came in. I mean, what had happened to me was I'd, I'd been acting into the late 80s and I reached a point where I was doing. I was doing a lot of regional theater. I was mm. doing a lot of theater you didn't get highly paid for, or you had to go out of town for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. In 1986, I got married to a director I'd met at the Ensemble Studio Theater, Pamela Berlin. And then in 1987, I had a daughter who's now a member of the Ensemble Studio Theater, <laughs> Molly Carden. Uh, and I needed to make more money. And, and I had also reached a point, it's interesting, where in part because I, I looked, I always looked really young 
when I was 30 years old, I played a character who aged in the course. It was a TV series on Channel 13, but he aged from 16 into his 20s. Mm. But I actually was playing a 16-year-old when I was 30. Nice. And, and it was believable. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I could look that young. So I, you know, I was, I played a lot of angry sons in family <laughs> plays because I that, I had that experience in life. But I reached a point where I didn't, I just couldn't do that anymore. Mm. And, you know, and I remember reading this play that I was supposed to be yelling at my father. And I, I remember just going, I, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> Because As a thirty-something-year-old, you're like, I'm done yelling at my dad. Yeah, yeah, and I want, I want to be a dad, or I want to be in that role. I don't, right. you know. And then, and and I think one of the hard things is you get older as an actor is, as an actor, you're a child, in in the best sense of the word. You you're allowed to be in a child's role. You're allowed to play. You're allowed to do all that and use mm-hmm. your imagination, but you're very dependent on everyone else. Mm. They have to give you the job. You're in that, you're constantly in that position. You're not right. in charge. Right. They dress you. They like right. Right. feed you when yeah. you're good. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. You know, and that, and when, it, and when you're in it, that's wonderful. When you're not in it, you're waiting for it. You're in that role and you're very needy. And I also felt I I felt that people weren't working the way I like to work or that I thought we should work. You know, I would do readings of plays that wouldn't get done and I would go, why aren't these plays getting done? Mm. And, you know, and I started to want to direct and that's how I started directing. Uh, there were a couple of playwrights. The first one was a guy named Don Ponturo who had a play and, you know, I read it and I said, I you know I could... I would work with you on this. And he said, yeah. So we started, we did a workshop of it at EST. That's how I started directing. And then one of the plays I did at EST was that I acted in was a play called Dennis by Jim, Jim Ryan, James Ryan, which was a really interesting play that I did with Peter Friedman. If Mm. you know, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And we were, we sort of were the two leads in this play, but then Jim, had had other plays and uh, and I remember doing a reading of the play of his as an actor and that didn't go well and I said you know this didn't work because it wasn't directed right would you let me direct it so and I started working with him on the play so that's how it that's how I started also directing mm-hmm. um, and at the same time in order to make money I through different connections. I met a man named Ben Schachtman who had founded and run the Pittsburgh public theater. Uh Um, But he had moved on to starting his own corporate communications business. He trained me and hired me to do what he did. So I started coaching people in corporations. On how to communicate. On how to communicate on how to do presentations. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, And it was interesting because what people don't know is that whole actor part of my life, I was a very quiet person. I spoke rarely. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I was, I was a quiet, you know. And you only yelled at your dad. <laughs> I only yelled at my dad. <laughs> um, and through this, I started, you know, it was so odd that I ended up talking to other people about how to, how to present and communicate, but it, it actually was an extension of acting. It was totally you, you, you are moving, you are moving an audience to do something. Right. What is your action? What are you trying to do? How can you do that? Who are they? How are you going to reach them? How are you going to connect? You know? Yeah. So I'd started doing that work, which actually was hugely liberating because I realized I could make money. Um, yes. You know, I didn't have to be all, I mean, all I'd really been up to that point for that, those 20 years or almost 20 years was an actor. That's all I'd done. And I didn't think I could do anything else. But then I didn't realize how much acting teaches you. Mm. You know, I had, you know, the people I were working with, 
couldn't concentrate on something for more than six minutes. Your fellow actors or the communication? No, the, 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 the people in, I was working with in corporations. Uh-huh. It was very hard for them to take a piece, you know, they if they were doing a 40-minute presentation, really work on that presentation. What I realized was, as an actor, you're trained to work eight hours a day, six days a week, for four weeks, mm-hmm. on the same two hours of material. That's what you're doing, you know, and you're going into it. And, and also, you know, the ability to watch someone and concentrate on what they're doing and give them feedback is something acting trains you to do. Right. That yeah. I didn't, of course, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that's what I'd been doing. But so that was, that was hugely helpful because it, it just gave me a perspective that I needed at that point in my life. I mean, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was 39 when I got married. I was 40 when I had a child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm running out of time and I have so many questions I want to ask you. So I'm just going to do an inelegant transition here. So you're at, you're at EST. Was the path to AD kind of something that you had been eyeing, had been planning on? How did that, how did it come into your lap? It came into my lap because in 1994, I had met, I, you know, I, Back way back in the day, I studied also studied with Uta Hagen. Yes, I read that. And you know, she had been married to Herbert Berghoff, who ran the HB Playwrights Foundation, where they did plays next mm. to the studio. And he died in 1990. In 1992, they brought the theater back by doing excerpts of work that people he directed people in. And I went to see with my friend Peter Weller. Uda perform in an act of this play called Charlotta, which was a, my least favorite kind of play, historical monodrama. She, you know, it's good as mistress waiting for the letter to arrive, waiting for the, listening for the coach and talking to you. And I sat in that theater. It was one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever seen. Wow. She was so alive on stage, you were afraid she would catch you not looking. <laughs> and so... I went out with her afterwards and I talked and I, and I was starting to direct and I just talked about what I thought she could do with the theater. Another guy was running it at that point. Long story short, in 1994, she called me one evening and I hadn't talked to her since then. I had written her a letter the next day just thanking her and saying what an amazing performance it was. And she'd written me back. But then I hadn't talked to her and she said, Billy, this is Uta Hagen. Glenn is resigning. Do you want to run the theater? Wow. And I said... From one conversation um, with her. Right. Um, and I said, I think you should... Inter-, I said, I'm interested. I think you should interview me. <laughs> because I knew she was a very powerful woman. And yeah. I knew if we didn't agree, it wouldn't be a good thing. So I, I met her interviewed with her. They asked me, I became the artistic director of the HB Playwrights Foundation. I had no idea what I was doing, but I'd worked with a lot of people who did Mm. know what they were doing. So I talked to them and ran that theater and ended up, and one of the things I said when I met with her is, do you want to act in this theater? And she said, absolutely. So there was this play I knew, Mrs. Klein, that I'd learned about because Pam, my wife, had been someone had approached her about directing it at one point. And, and I, so I started, I said, do you know this play, Mrs. Klein? And she said, absolutely. Then, you know, everyone said I should do that play. Because when Pam had read the play, that's how I remembered it. When Pam had read it, she said, I just read this play. They, they want to do it with, I think, Olympia Dukakis. She said, Uta Hagen should do this play. So I directed her in that play at the HP Playwrights Foundation. And then it moved to a commercial production. Oh, wow. Off Broadway and ran for a year and then went on national tour. Were so you intimidated up, by Uda? Actually, I wasn't. I mean, she, because she wanted to work and you just had to be as well prepared as she was in terms of knowing the, the play and what, what things were. And she wanted to discover. She didn't want to do it her way. And she actually, you know, she said, because I directed her in that and then I directed her in collected stories. And she said, you know, every time... I start a play, I feel like I have to learn how to act all over again. 
because she would start from a place of truth and discovery, not like, I know this. And it was also, you know, as, as people who've worked with her, you know, she said many times, many people can act. It's very hard to be a human being on stage. That's what she was pursuing. And when she did it, it was absolutely extraordinary. She loved to rehearse. She loved the process of rehearsing. She loved long runs. She loved doing a play again and again and again. And it was never, she never said a line this, exactly the same way twice. It was always off of the moment. It was all, what's, what's happening here? Mm. Her capacity for that was extraordinary. You know, and her understanding of acting was profound. And she would try anything. And when it didn't work, she would be really clear about why it didn't work. If I had an idea, you know, mm. um, you know, she, yes, she could have, she could have fits and be demanding and get really upset and all of those things. But at the heart of it was someone who just had a love of acting. That's the thing I remember most when, you know, after I saw that performance she did of, you know, Goethe's mistress and we were walking up the street. I, I remember I said, I said, you know, Uda, I studied with you, but you should be acting because what you're doing on stage is, is so beyond what we know of you as a teacher. And she just, she looked at me and she said, I love to act. And that point she was 70, 74, 74 years old. And she hadn't done a play in 10 years. And she eventually, when the play opened at the Lortel, she wrote me a note that said, you've given me something I never thought I would have again. Wow. And then after that, she went into a depression and said, "I, you know, she just wanted to act again, which is how I then found Donald Margulies' play, Collected Stories. And we basically followed the same thing at that. We did it at HP. And, you know, when we did plays at HP, we rehearsed them for eight weeks. That was the difference. And so that followed the same thing. It moved to the Lortel, and then it, we actually did it at the Stratford Festival in Canada. So when Kurt Dempster died under very tragic circumstances, right, and very sudden, mm. I had left, Uda had died in 2003, and I'd left HB. And so they asked me to come in on a kind of on an interim basis because the theater was just falling apart. Mm. Uh, and there was tremendous strife within the theater itself between the membership and the board and all of that. So that's that's how I that's how I came in. But I'd had I'd had ten years of running the HP Playwrights Foundation, which I ran for actually eleven years. Yeah. Wow. So. Yeah. And EST, I mean, when I think about you know even just this coming season of New York theater at large all the playwrights that are coming out with the new plays this season, like Sylvia Corey, Erica Dickerson-Despenza, Lucas Nath, Will Arbery and Claire Barron have plays coming out next year. All of these people have touched EST in some way. Why or how do you think this happens? Is it is it the chicken and the egg thing? Is it that EST is good at selecting the up-and-coming talent or is it that somehow EST facilitates their careers in some way? Or is it just coincidence what are your no, thoughts I, I think it's i think it's very intentional e est is the entry level i mean it's i think it's greatest strength and this is hard because there's this me lifetime membership of artists that are also part of it but it, it, where it's been most successful is it's where people get their first production it's where they get their first chance either as actors directors or playwrights and it's it's always encouraged that, and it's always taken that risk. The reason Sylvia's play is being done at Playwrights Horizons is because she had a play successfully done at the Ensemble Studio Theater. Lucas Nath's first off-Broadway production was at the ensemble was at the Ensemble Studio Theater. Isaac's Eye. Um, I saw that. Yeah. You know. Well, that's that's why, and it's it's that in combination with the Youngblood program, because Youngblood is a unique program for playwrights, with the idea that once you're in the program, you're in it until you you reach the age of thirty-one, 
And so that gives unique support to people like, yes, Claire, like Leah Nanika Winkler, like, I mean, the, the list just goes on and on yeah. of, of those playwrights. But it's because that's who the theater is really investing in. And for actors, it's, you know, Steve Boyer just came of age at the Ensemble Studio Theater. Will Harper came of age at the Ensemble Studio Theater, you know. Marich von Stolpnagel was the same. Other examples are like Colette Robert right now, whose career is taking off. Um, yeah. You know, has d- directed more Youngblood pieces than I think anyone. So when you're hearing new work, seeing new work, what what are you looking for? What catches your ear and you're like, yes, this is a play or playwright that I want to invest time and resources into? Um. I wish I could, you know, say say what that is, but it's it's like me asking you when you meet a person, what do you look for, in a way, and and you what you look for is something that speaks to you truthfully, or connects to you, makes a genuine, authentic connection. But I think it's important. I mean, the thing I've learned in this job is, no one person can see a play. It takes more than one person. And I've always worked that way. That's why I worked very closely with Graham and Lindsay and RJ, because we all see plays differently. That's what's so interesting to me. I mean, as you know, I come from this kind of, you know, I learned more through experience than through an MFA program. You know, I have no degrees, but I learned theater through doing theater. But it was through acting, directing, and that's my, that's my lens, right? Mm-hmm. Graham has a playwriting lens. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's his lens. Lindsay has an MFA in directing and dramaturgy. She, that's her lens. You know, she is structurally no, sees things that I don't see. RJ is a director. He has his lens. So it's listening. <laughs> it's also listening to other people respond to the play. Right. And I've never my experience at AST and the productions we've done, and I'm, I feel good about every one, but I don't look at it and go, ah, that was my choice. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it was through conversations and listening and then working on the play and seeing where the play goes that we, you know, I feel like we all arrived at that decision. Right. You know, I don't think there's any kind of genius who just, picks plays because, you know, sometimes plays read really well and they don't play as well as they read. Sometimes plays don't read well and they play much better than they, they read. And you need to know that too. You know, you know, well, you know we, we're not getting this. Maybe we need to listen to this play. Maybe we need to put a reading together and see, see what happens. It's, it's all of those things. Right. And Speaking of the team, and you mentioned that you took over as AD in a kind of tumultuous time, and it was announced earlier this year that you're stepping down as AD, and the company is currently going through its search for the next AD or team of ADs. What advice do you have for your successors about this company? I don't know that I, I don't know that I have advice. I think change is necessary. And I'm what I hope is that I haven't stayed too long because I do I do feel that younger people should be running, should be leading the theater. I think that's really important. I think it's it's not just a change in leadership, it's a generational change that you and people see the world differently than I do. You know, because I'm I think what I see has great value. But I also think what people are seeing today has to be at the forefront of what a theater is doing Mm -hmm. and responding to. And that's why I don't want to be part of the transition in terms of whatever decisions are made. I don't Mm -hmm. think that I should, you know, I'm certainly, if people want to talk to me about what my experience has been and what my opinion might be, that's fine. But I don't want to be weighing in on how this should be done, because I think it's very necessary for the theater to find its own way. And for for this team that's representative of the community 
to really engage in that process. And I, and I, and I really want to support that. Um, I think, uh, I don't, you know, it, it's interesting. I was, you know, I was talking to John Eisner who, you know, ran the, the Lark, you know, founded the Lark. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking about leadership and, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on, on, on leadership and how to train for leadership. And I, you know, I think what's more important is where the passion is, because that's what drives you. And the, and for me, the thing I care most about is how we do what we do, the process we go through to do a play, how we work, how we work together, how we work from the moment we read the play to the to the moment the play closes. And 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 that's in part because I learned a tremendous amount rehearsing, you know, when I did Mrs. Klein with Buddha, we rehearsed the play for eight weeks. I learned how much was in that play. I learned what was there. I learned how if you take the time and work in a way to really discover extraordinary things happen. And, you know, the thing I, you know, and I think the thing that has distinguished the work that's happened while I've been at EST is the quality of what happens between the people on stage, how they talk to each other, because that's what our experience of theater is, is how those people are actually talking to each other and listening to each other and responding to each other. And that's when it gets exciting. And that's when you approach human truth. So that's, you know, that's what I, that's been my passion. So maybe it's, maybe I've responded to plays that totally go in that direction, as opposed to plays that are maybe more fastly comedic or something like that. Um, But you, you know, I don't think, I don't think it serves you to be objective in the job. I think you have to be connected to your heart. You have to be connected to your to your gut and your passion, and and at the same time work really collaboratively. Amazing! Thank you, Billy. Thank you for chatting. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I talked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad. Billy Carter. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And thank you again to our sponsor, Northwestern University Press. If you have something you want us to give a shout out to on the show, please feel free to reach out. Uh, We've been hearing from lots of you, so thank you so much for all your kind words. Until next time, have a great day.